Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Wednesday, January 24th, 2024 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story. It's entitled, Adding Firefighters to Staff Ambulances, Proposal to Fill EMT Paramedic Positions, Sparks Debate. It's written by Dolly Butts of the Journal. City Council voted Monday to add four firefighter positions in effort to help Sioux City Fire Rescue fully staff ambulances. The city has seen more firefighter candidates than EMT and paramedic candidates. The fire chief, Tom Everett, told the council before the vote that there were no paramedic candidates on the most recent list. Of the five EMT candidates, he said four were hired and one declined the position. The EMS division currently has four slots open. There are about 10 firefighter candidates to fill positions, but no firefighter positions open. Sioux City Fire Rescue started the new EMS division on January 1, 2018 to fill the void left by Siouxland Paramedics, the nonprofit agency that stopped providing emergency services due to financial difficulties. We've been six years with this EMS division. After that first year, we've kind of had openings that we were always chasing, Everett said. Basically, since that time, we ramped up recruiting. We came to you and got pay raises. We came to you and got schedule changes. We've done mileage enhancements for residency, several other things that just haven't allowed us to catch up with that staffing with the turnover. Firefighters are required to have an Iowa EMT certification before being hired, and they currently perform EMT and paramedic duties, including being first responders on emergency medical services calls. The move to hire firefighters to fill current vacant EMT and paramedic positions will increase the amount of time Medic 5 in Morningside is staffed and decrease overall time. The vote was 4-0. to zero. Mayor Pro Tem Dan Moore left the meeting early, so he did not vote on the matter. The council, however, deferred a vote on a resolution that would authorize Everett to fill vacant EMT, paramedic, and lead paramedic positions with firefighter positions through attrition or retirements. Mayor Bob Scott said he used the ambulance service at least three times in the last four to five years and didn't have any issues with the care he received. I can tell you that I couldn't tell the difference if it was a paramedic or a fireman. The care was excellent, he said. I don't understand why it's all or none. There are people who do not want to be firefighters who are very capable of taking care of my family when the need arises. The additional costs of firefighters are or are nearly offset by savings realized from testing, hiring, training, uniform, and PPE on-call personnel and overtime currently being spent. The immediate impact is estimated at $36,000. Scott said he is opposed to going to a firefighter-based EMS model because some people are excellent paramedics who may not be able to test to be firefighters. I think you should retain some of these positions as EMTs and paramedics, he said. Councilman Matthew O'Kane said he is not against having more well-trained firefighters, but he took issue with the fact that individuals on the rescue side were surprised to see such a resolution come before the council. I can only imagine what some of these people in EMT are thinking, like how many more years until I just don't have a job? I think that's a lot of stress to put on someone, he said. I'm just concerned that now we've got some people in a panic and feel like they've had their positions targeted. 
Everett clarified that no current Sioux City Fire Rescue employees' jobs are in jeopardy and noted that there are great employees on both sides. He said the proposal creates staffing flexibility since firefighters can work on an ambulance or a fire truck throughout the day, throughout the city, excuse me. When we have an extra firefighter that day and maybe an opening on an ambulance, we can shift that firefighter over to the ambulance. So it's not a given that there's automatically going to be firefighters on ambulances right out of the gate. It's going to depend on staff shortages, he said. Councilwoman Julie Schoenher asked if the EMT and paramedic career paths were being taken out of Sioux City and what individuals interested in pursuing those positions locally would do. We're losing some people to other services, and that includes the hospitals that would hire EMTs or paramedics, a transfer service that might hire EMTs or whatever, Everett said. There's other opportunities, but it certainly does lessen the opportunity in Sioux City. Liz Ford, a paramedic with Sioux City Fire Rescue, who serves as vice president of Local 2796, American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, representing Sioux City professional administrative, technical, and supervisory employees, said she is aware of five individuals who want to apply as EMTs and become paramedics. We had six on the list. I get it. It's not 500 people, but we are gaining, she said. Those people want to do those jobs just as they want to be firefighters. Classes have people in them, and these people want that as their profession. Ford told the council that each division is a specialized craft. It is our expertise, dedication, and leadership that focuses and guides new EMTs and medics for the future to take care of us all, she said. Just looking at the experience is amazing since the group that transitioned in 2018 has well over 200 years of experience. I would hate to see that go away for any reason. Our next article on the front page of the journal is entitled, Pillin Says We Have to Fix Property Tax. Nebraska Governor Visited South Sioux City Tuesday. This is written by Jared McNett of the journal. Near the start of his town hall in Sioux, South Sioux City on Tuesday afternoon, Nebraska Governor Jim Pillen said he's focused on kids, taxes, agriculture, and values in 2024. But the bulk of the hour plus he spent in the South Sioux City Council chambers was dedicated to just one of, of those topics. We have to fix property tax, Pillen told the two dozen or so in attendance. Pillen said one of the motivators on the issue is that he's heard complaints from people about not being able to afford to stay in their homes because of the state's high property tax rate. That's unacceptable, Pillen said. Pillen, whose family runs a Columbus-based hog operation, is pushing a plan to reduce property taxes in Nebraska by 40%, which would mean more than $2 billion off of the $5 billion the state collected in 2022. According to U.S. Census Bureau data, in 2021, Nebraska ranks 7th in the nation for highest property tax rate. Residential real estate is assessed at nearly 100% of market value. The Associated Press reported Pillen has also floated a plan to raise Nebraska's state sales tax on goods such as cars, clothing, and home appliances to 7.5%, which would be the highest in the country. Another idea of Pillen's to offset decreased property tax receipts is a hard spending cap on local governments that could only be increased by a vote. 
We have to do something different. If we all agree we have to fix it and we keep doing the same thing and think we're going to get a different outcome, I think that would that word is called insanity. We have to do something different, Pillen said. He then suggested growth the state would see from property tax relief could help cover local needs. South Sioux City Administrator Lance Hedquist said South Sioux City would be prepared if the state does make local government sp spending caps a reality. We've been a growing community since the turn of the century. We will continue to be a growth city, and we're going to play with whatever cards were dealt, he said. Hedquist said he's heard quite a bit from South Sioux City residents about their property tax problems in recent years. They've really gone up faster than inflation, and that's caused by all the governmental bodies here, Hedquist said, and we do need to get a cap put on that system. As a part of his State of the State Town Hall schedule, Pillen made other two appearances in the state on Tuesday, a stop at the Hall County Airport Authority Office in Grand Island, and a stop at the Norfolk Area Chamber of Commerce in Norfolk. In our final story from the front page of the journal, Oakview Group to Manage Convention Center. Council terminated city's agreement with Kinseth this month. It's written by Dolly Butts of the journal. Oakview Group will be managing the Sioux City Convention Center in addition to the Tyson Events Center and Orpheum Theater after the City Council voted Monday to amend an existing management agreement with the Philadelphia-based company. The vote was 4-1, to one, with Mayor Bob Scott casting the lone no vote. Scott said he thinks the agreement for the Convention Center should be a separate, completely different contract. I don't want one agreement because what if they perform excellent at the Tyson and not so excellent at the convention center? Then we've got to terminate them at both places, he said. Scott said he has no problem with OVG 360's Nick Palmiotti, who took the reins as the Tyson Events Center and Orpheum Theater's general manager in March. OVG 360 and OVG Hospitality are divisions of Oakview Group. Scott said Palmiotti is doing a fine job. Earlier this month, the council unanimously voted to terminate the city's agreement with Kinseth Hospitality Incorporated for the management and operation of the city-owned convention center. OVG 360, formerly Spectra, took over booking, marketing, staffing, and food and beverage service at the Tyson and Orpheum in January of 2018 after the council voted to privatize the Tyson's operations. OVG 360 also manages booking services at the Seaboard Triumph Foods Expo Center and OVG Hospitality manages food and beverage service at select locations at Sioux Gateway Airport. City Manager Bob Padmore previously told the Journal the Council requested the contract with Kinseth be terminated based on some issues that have transpired at the Convention Center. He said the City intends to have a transition without any disruption of the facility. The city entered into the agreement with Kinseth on June the 5th of 2017, according to city documents. Kinseth also manages the adjoining 150-room courtyard by Marriott Hotel and will continue to do so. After the vote to terminate Kinseth's contract, Mayor Bob Scott said the North Liberty, Iowa-based company made some improvements a little too late. I really struggled with why it had to come to this, he said during the council January 8th meeting. You neglected the place quite a bit, and only under the threat of losing this contract did you get some pretty good people. 
In August 2022, the Council voted to extend a management agreement with OVG360 for the management and operation of the Tyson and Orpheum for five years and potentially another five years after that. The 10,000-seat Tyson had been owned and run by the city since it opened in 2003. The Orpheum is independently owned and jointly operated with the city. Scott was the only council member who voted against the extension. At that time, he said he didn't think OVG 360 performed as well as it should. I know Councilman Alex Waters has got a wonderful relationship with OVG. Mine is not so wonderful, Scott said Monday. I'm not going to sit here and tell you how great they are because I had my difficulties. Under the terms of the proposed Second Amendment to the management agreement with OVG 360, the city would pay the company a monthly management fee of $5,000 to manage the convention center and a quantitative incentive for any reduction of operating subsidy below $400,000 base subsidy. The city would also pay up to $10,000 for a qualitative incentive based upon customer feedback, quality of food, maintenance and cleanliness of the facility, and quality of events booked at the venue, according to city documents. According to a joint statement from the city and Oakview Group, since taking over the Tyson, OVG 360 has reduced the annual operating subsidy and maintained a high level of booking content for the market. At the Orpheum, the statement said Oakview Group has reduced the operating deficit by improving the overall mix of content and making improvements in concession operations. Both venues have been upgraded with digital payment processing systems for faster transaction times. We are honored that the City of Sioux City has entrusted Oakview Group to guide the next chapter of the Sioux City Convention Center, Greg O'Dell, President, Venue Management, OVG360 said in the statement. We see this as an incredible opportunity to bring our depth of experience in the marketplace and around the globe to elevate the visitor experience, support the surrounding community, and drive sustainability. With our relentless pursuit of operational excellence, we look forward to further establishing the Sioux City Convention Center as a leading destination for meetings and conventions. The statement said planning begins immediately to ensure a seamless transition for convention center clients, guests, and employees. OVG 360 is a full-service venue management company specializing in sports, live entertainment, and hospitality. It has a portfolio of more than 300 arenas, stadiums, convention centers, performing arts centers, cultural institutions, and state fairs around the world. Our next article is entitled, Nelson Running for Woodbury County Board Term, Elected a Year Ago to Fill Remainder of DeWitt's Term. It's written by Caitlin Yamada of The Journal. The dateline is Sioux City. Mark Nelson announced Tuesday he plans to run for a full term on the Woodbury County Board of Supervisors. Nelson was elected in January of 2023 to serve the remaining two years of Rocky DeWitt's term. DeWitt resigned after being elected to the Iowa Senate in 2022. Nelson is a farmer living in Correctionville and is originally from Moville. He is the owner and operator of Hungry Canyon Cattle Company and farm manager of Bar and Feedlots. He was one of nine individuals who submitted applications for the open District 3 seat. A committee comprised of Treasurer Tina Bertrand, County Attorney James Loomis, and Auditor Pat Gill was in charge of the appointment process. 
Nelson said at the time the four main issues in Woodbury County were the secondary road improvement project, the construction of the new jail, wind turbine projects, and the carbon pipeline project. Nelson was appointed as a member of the Law Enforcement Center Authority in September amid the delay of the jail project. Nelson was also temporarily appointed vice chair of the Board of Supervisors after Jeremy Taylor resigned due to his wife's voter fraud conviction. The seat now filled by Nelson makes up most of the northern part of rural Woodbury County with a portion in Sioux City. Nelson previously said he felt it was important to run and have rural representation on the board. Nelson, Keith Radig, and Jeremy Taylor are up for re-election this coming November. The candidate filing period for county offices is March 4th through March 22nd for the primary. The primary will take place June the 4th with the general election scheduled for November the 5th. Sioux City man arrested for bank robbery. Suspect robbed the same bank 10 years ago. This is written by Mason Doctor of the Journal. A Sioux City man has been charged in the Tuesday morning robbery of a downtown bank. A decade ago, he was convicted of robbing the same bank. Jonathan Bird Necklace, age 31, was arrested without incident at 3.20 p.m. Tuesday in the 1700 block of Nebraska Street, according to a press release from the Sioux City Police Department. Bird Necklace was booked at the Woodbury County Jail on a charge of second-degree robbery. Officers were dispatched to Great Southern Bank, 329 Pierce Street, at around 9.52 a.m. Tuesday. A man had entered the bank and passed a note to a teller demanding money. He received an undisclosed sum of money and fled on foot. This was not the first time Bird Necklace has been charged with robbing the Great Southern Bank. In October of 2014, he was charged with second-degree robbery after robbing the same branch. The following spring, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but was eligible for parole after seven years. Trump-Biden win New Hampshire primaries. November election rematch appears increasingly likely. Former President Donald Trump easily won New Hampshire's primary Tuesday, seizing command of the race for the Republican nomination and making a November rematch against President Joe Biden feel all the more inevitable. The result was a setback for former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, who finished in second place after investing significant time and financial resources into winning the state. She was the last major challenger in the GOP race after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis ended his presidential bid over the weekend, allowing her to campaign as the sole alternative to Trump. Haley intensified her criticism of the former president, questioning his mental acuity and pitching herself as a unifying candidate who would usher in generational change. The appeals failed to resonate with enough voters. Trump can now boast of being the first Republican presidential candidate to win open races in Iowa and New Hampshire since both states began leading the election calendar in 1976, a striking sign of how rapidly Republicans rallied around him to make him their nominee for the third consecutive time. By posting easy wins in both early states, Trump demonstrated an ability to unite the GOP's factions. He garnered support from the evangelical conservatives who are influential in Iowa and New Hampshire's more moderate voters' strength. He hopes to replicate as the primary quickly expands to the rest of the U.S. 
President Joe Biden won New Hampshire's largely symbolic Democratic primary Tuesday, prevailing in an unusual write-in effort after he refused to campaign or appear on the ballot in the state. In national news, suspected killer shoots self in police encounter. Authorities say man related to most victims of Chicago area spree. This comes from the Associated Press and the Dateline in Chicago. A man suspected of shooting and killing eight people in suburban Chicago this weekend was related to most of the victims, authorities said Tuesday, a day after the 23-year-old shot and killed himself after a confrontation with law enforcement in Texas. Joliet Police and the Will County Sheriff's Office said investigators believe Romeo Nance shot seven people, most of whom were relatives, at two homes in Joliet on Sunday before randomly shooting two men at other nearby locations. One of those men survived. The Illinois authorities said there was no evidence to provide a motive for the killings at this point. Nance shot and killed himself Monday evening after U.S. Marshals located him near Natalia, Texas, about 30 miles southwest of San Antonio, authorities said. Medina County, Texas Sheriff Randy Brown said the sheriff's office received a call Monday about a person suspected in the Chicago area killings heading into the county on Interstate 35. Brown said he believes the suspect was trying to reach Mexico. The Texas Rangers are investigating Nance's death. A couple stories from under the digest heading. First, union membership rate at all-time low. Unions commanded big headlines with strikes last year, but that didn't translate into higher membership rates. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics said Tuesday that 10% of hourly and salaried workers were members of unions in 2023, or about 14.4 million people. That's an all-time low, down from 10.1% in 2022. The number of unionized workers in the private sector rose by 191,000 to 7.4 million last year, but the percentage, 6%, was unchanged from the prior year as unionized rates didn't keep pace with overall hiring. The unionization rate for public sector employees was far higher at 32.5%, but that sector didn't see as much growth in in employment. About 7 million public sector workers were union members in 2023, unchanged from the prior year. The National Labor Relations Board reported 2,594 filings for union representation in its 2023 fiscal year, up 3% from 2022. And man convicted in New York driveway shooting, Dateline Fort Edward, New York, A man was convicted Tuesday in the shooting death of a young woman in an SUV that mistakenly drove into his rural driveway in upstate New York. After deliberating for less than an hour, a jury found Kevin Monahan, age 66, guilty of second-degree murder for shooting Kaylin Gillis, age 20, on a Saturday night last April after she and friends pulled into his driveway while searching for another house. The friends began leaving once they realized their mistake, but Monahan came out to his porch and fired twice with his shotgun, the second shot hitting Gillis in the neck. Monahan also was convicted of reckless endangerment and tampering with physical evidence. The murder conviction carries a maximum sentence of 25 years to life. Sentencing was set for March the 1st. 
And briefly, Washington's federal appeals court rejected Donald Trump's request Tuesday to reconsider a gag order restricting his speech in the case charging him with plotting to overturn the 2020 election. Federal prosecutors expanded their investigation of a bribery scheme Monday involving two former U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration supervisors turning their attention to two Miami defense attorneys suspected of profiting from leaks of confidential DA. DEA information. Edward Richmond Jr., age 40, of Geismar, Louisiana, a former U.S. Army soldier convicted of manslaughter for fatally shooting a handcuffed civilian in Iraq about 20 years ago, was ordered released Tuesday, a day after his arrest for attacking police officers during the January 6, 2021 U.S. Capitol riot. And the Los Angeles Times began Tuesday to lay off at least 115 employees, more than 20% of its newsroom, one of the largest staff cuts in the newspaper's 143-year history. In world news, Israel encircles large city. Officials say militants in Gaza fired rocket that killed 21 soldiers. Palestinian militants carried out the deadliest single attack on Israeli forces in Gaza since the Hamas raid that triggered the war, killing 21 soldiers, the military said Tuesday, a significant setback that could add to mounting calls for a ceasefire. Hours later, the military announced that ground forces encircled the southern city of Khan Yunus, Gaza's second-largest, and thick black smoke could be seen rising over the city as thousands of Palestinians fled south. Witnesses said Israeli tanks and troops also moved into Muwasi, a nearby coastal area that the military previously declared a safe zone for Palestinians. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu mourned the Israeli soldiers who died when the blast from a rocket-propelled grenade triggered explosives they were laying to blow up buildings. He vowed to press ahead toward absolute victory, including crushing Hamas and freeing more than 100 Israeli hostages still held by the militants. Israelis are increasingly questioning whether it's possible to achieve those war aims. In the wake of Hamas's October the 7th attack, outraged Israelis set aside long-simmering political differences and rallied behind the war. More than 100 days later, divisions are re-emerging and anger is growing over Netanyahu's conduct in the war. Families of the hostages have called for Israel to reach a deal with Hamas, saying time is running out to bring their relatives home alive. A senior Egyptian official said Israel proposed a two-month ceasefire in which the hostages would be freed in exchange for the release of Palestinians imprisoned by Israel and top Hamas leaders in Gaza would be allowed to relocate to other countries. The official, who spoke on condition of anonymity, said Hamas rejected the proposal and insights, insists no more hostages will be released until Israel ends its offensive and withdraws from Gaza. Israel's government declined to comment on the talks. Israel launched its offensive after Hamas crossed the border October the 7th. The fighting killed more than 1,200 people and militants abducted some 250 others. The offensive has caused widespread death and destruction, killing at least 25,490 people, the majority women and children, and wounding another 63,354, according to the health ministry in Hamas-run Gaza. Its count does not differentiate between civilians and combatants. 
An estimated 85% of Gaza's 2.3 million people have been driven from their homes. And in the Ukrainian war, Pentagon out of support funds. Moscow launches more than 40 missiles, killing at least seven. The United States is out of money for Ukraine, unable to send the ammunition and missiles that the government in Kyiv says it needs to fend off Russia's invasion. With the aid caught up in domestic politics, the Biden administration on Tuesday came empty-handed for the first time as host of the monthly meeting of about 50 nations that coordinate support for Ukraine. The group was established by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in April of 2022. While waiting for Congress to approve more money for Ukraine's fight, Washington will look to allies to keep bridging the gap. I urge this group to dig deep to provide Ukraine with more life-saving ground-based air defense systems and interceptors, Austin said in opening remarks broadcast from his home, where he is recuperating after prostate cancer surgery. The opening statement by video was the first public appearance from Austin, age 70, who appeared slightly gaunt. He was hospitalized for two weeks after complications from the surgery. After the meeting, Celeste Wallander, Assistant Defense Secretary for International Affairs, told reporters that Ukraine's Ministry of Defense is getting reports from its front lines that units do not have the stock and the stores of ammunition that they require. Meanwhile, Russian missiles struck three Ukrainian cities Tuesday, including its two biggest, killing at least seven people and wrecking apartment buildings after Moscow shunned any deal backed by Kyiv and its western allies to end the war. The barrage included more than 40 ballistic, crews, anti-aircraft, and guided missiles, officials reported, in what the United Nations said appeared to be the heaviest bombardment since early January when hundreds of Ukrainian civilians were killed. Ukraine's Air Force, whose defense include Western-supplied systems, said it intercepted 21 of the missiles. The attack keeps Ukrainian on edge while the 930-mile front line has barely budged. Both sides' inability to deliver major gains on the battlefield has pushed the fighting toward trench and artillery warfare. Analysts say Russia stockpiled missiles at the end of last year to press a winter campaign of aerial bombardment. Sweden one step closer to NATO membership. Turkish parliament approves application. Hungary remains. Turkish legislators endorsed Sweden's membership in NATO Tuesday, lifting a major hurdle on the previously non-aligned country's entry into the military alliance. Lawmakers ratified Sweden's accession protocol 287-55, to with ruling party members saying the Nordic country's tougher stance on Kurdish militants was key to winning approval. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan also previously linked the ratification to Turkey's desire to buy fighter jets from the U.S. The ratification comes into effect after its publication of, in the official gazette, which was expected to be swift. Hungary is the only remaining NATO ally not to have ratified Sweden's accession. NATO member Turkey delayed Sweden's membership for more than a year, accusing the country of being too lenient towards groups that Ankara regards as security threats. It sought concessions from Stockholm, including moves to counter militants. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban said Tuesday he sent a letter to his Swedish counterpart, Ulf Christensen, 
inviting him to Budapest to discuss Sweden's entry into NATO. Now here's an article entitled, Rich are Really Are Getting Richer, As Wealth, wealth Gap Skyrockets World May See First Trillionaire. This comes from the Associated Press. The world might see its first trillionaire sooner than you think, and that puts a spotlight on today's richest 1%. In an annual assessment of global inequalities, Oxfam International said the first trillionaire could emerge within the next decade as the anti-poverty organization pointed to the growing wealth gap that skyrocketed globally during the COVID-19 pandemic. Among the findings, Oxfam highlighted how the personal fortunes of the world's five richest people, Tesla CEO Elon Musk, Bernard Arnault, and his family of luxury company LVMH, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, Oracle founder Larry Ellison, and investment guru Warren Buffett have more than doubled since 2020. To measure this jump, Oxfam pulled net worths from Forbes' real-time billionaires list as of March 2020 and the end of November 2023. Such lists fluctuate over time and even within hours, so while Buffett, for example, was the fifth richest person in November, he stood in seventh place per Forbes' January 17th rankings. Oxfam timed its report to the gathering of political and business elites in Davos, Switzerland, where the World Economic Forum meets annually. Numerous billionaires and multi-millionaires also penned a letter calling on global leaders to fairly tax the super-rich like themselves. Musk, Arnaud, Bezos, Ellison, and Buffett were not among the signatories, although Buffett has famously criticized the wealthy's lower tax rates and previously advocated for policy change in the same vein. Here's a look at the wealth of these five famous billionaires and where their fortunes stand today. Elon Musk, $226.6 billion. Elon Musk is currently considered the world's richest person with a net worth of $226.6 billion per Forbes' real-time rankings as of January the 17th. That's down from $245.5 billion as of November 2023. In addition to being at the helm of Tesla, Musk is CEO of rocket ship company SpaceX. In 2022, he also purchased Twitter, which is now called X, for $44 billion. While he is no longer CEO of the social media platform, he still holds broad influence and has faced ample pushback on issues ranging from content moderation and hate speech to alienating advertisers. Bernard Arnault and Family, $175.1 billion. Bernard Arnault and his family currently hold a personal fortune of $171.1 billion per Forbes. That's down from about $191.3 billion in November 2023. The French businessman has served as CEO of LVMH Moet Hennessy Louis Vuitton, the world's largest luxury group since becoming the majority shareholder in 1989. He is also president of the board of for Group Arnaud SE, which is his family's holding company and primarily an investment firm. 
Jeff Bezos, $173.6 billion. Jeff Bezos's net worth stood at $173.6 billion on January 17th per Forbes. That's up from $167.4 billion in November 2023. Back in 1994, Bezos founded Amazon out of a Seattle garage and his wealth skyrocketed as the company grew into the e-commerce giant it is today. He stepped down as CEO in early 2021, but still has broad influence over Amazon as executive chair and the company's biggest shareholder. Larry Ellison, $134.9 billion. Larry Ellison currently has a personal fortune of $134.9 billion, according to Forbes, down from $145.5 in November 2023. Ellison co-founded Oracle Corporation, a software and database management giant, in 1977 and served as CEO until 2014. He is now Chief Technology Officer and Chairman of the Board. Ellison, who also had a stint on Tesla's Board of Directors from 2018 to 2022, has ranked high on billionaire lists for several years. And Warren Buffett, $119.5 billion. At the time Oxfam pulled Forbes' figures for its inequality report, Warren Buffett was the world's fifth richest person with a net worth of $119.2 billion. While his personal fortune has stayed relatively stable since, Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg and Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates have surpassed him in Forbes' rankings with current net worths of $129.5 billion and $120.1 billion, respectively. Over the years, Warren Buffett has gained a reputation for his investment success and aggressive business tactics. He runs Berkshire Hathaway, a holding conglomerate that owns dozens of companies across sectors like insurance, manufacturing, utilities, transportation, and retail. In health news, prepping for next pandemic. Scientists developing tests, drug therapies, vaccines for disease X. This is written by Jason Gale of Bloomberg News. It sounds like something Elon Musk might have cooked up. Disease X. In fact, the term was coined years ago as a way of getting scientists to work on medical countermeasures for unknown infectious threats, novel coronaviruses like the one that causes COVID-19, for example, instead of just known ones like the Ebola virus. The idea was to encourage the development of platform technologies, including vaccines, drug therapies, and diagnostic tests that could be rapidly adapted and deployed in response to an array of future outbreaks with epidemic or pandemic potential. What is disease X? It's the somewhat mysterious name of an illness caused by a currently unknown yet serious microbial threat. The World Health Organization added Disease X in 2017 to a short list of pathogens deemed a top priority for research alongside known killers like Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, better known as SARS, and Ebola. The issue made it onto the agenda of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, with WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus joining other health officials to discuss it. COVID-19 caused by a novel coronavirus was an example of a disease X when it touched off the pandemic at the end of 2019. 
the vast reservoir of viruses circulating in wildlife is seen as a likely source of more such diseases. That's because of their potential to spill over and infect other species, including humans, giving rise to an infection against which people will have no immunity. What's the point of studying disease X? As the WHO puts it, it's to enable early cross-cutting R&D preparedness that is also relevant for an unknown disease. The humanitarian crisis sparked by the 2014 through 2016 Ebola epidemic in West Africa was a wake-up call. Despite decades of research, there were no products ready to deploy in time to save more than 11,000 lives. In response, the WHO created an R&D blueprint to accelerate development of a range of tools for priority diseases. The current list includes COVID-19, Crimean, Congo, hemorrhagic fever, Ebola virus disease and Marburg virus disease, Lassa fever, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, better known as MERS and SARS, Nipah and Hennepaviral diseases, Rift Valley fever, Zika, and disease X. How's the research for the next pandemic going? It took just 326 days from the release of the genetic sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus to the authorization of the first COVID vaccine, thanks in part to the work done since 2017 in preparation for disease X. Now groups like the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or CEPI, are supporting rapid response vaccine platforms that could develop new immunizations within 100 days of a virus with pandemic potential emerging under a $3.5 billion plan. Other efforts underway include updating the international health regulations and developing a new global agreement to protect the world from future emergencies a new fund approved by the World Bank for Pandemic Prevention Preparedness and Response, a WHO hub for pandemic and epidemic intelligence in Berlin that aims to speed access to key data and develop analytical tools and predictive models to assess potential threats, the Global Virum Project that aims to discover zoonotic viral threats and stop future pandemics, a $5 billion U.S. government initiative to develop next-generation vaccines and treatments for COVID-19 called Project NextGen, $262.5 million in funding for a U.S. national network for detecting and responding more efficiently to public health emergencies, and establishment of a global center for pandemic therapeutics. Still, Numerous challenges threaten to undermine these efforts, including depleted and weakened health systems, a growing anti-science movement that has increased vaccine hesitancy, and the potential for governments to eventually deprioritize funding for outbreak detection and preparedness as perceived risks dissipate. Now we turn to the sports page, and we'll start with the men's college basketball AP Top 25 Roundup. South Carolina pulls away late to stun number 6 Kentucky. Talon Cooper scored 20 points, and Jacoby Wright had 14 with four three-pointers as South Carolina pulled away in the second half and beat number 6 Kentucky 79-62 on Tuesday night. 
The Gamecocks beat their highest-ranked opponent at home since taking down number 1 Kentucky 68-62 14 years ago. In that game, South Carolina overcame future NBA All-Stars John Wall and DeMarcus Cousins for the victory. In this one, they held the nation's top-scoring team that averaged more than 91 points to its lowest output of the season. Fans easily burst through the thin yellow ropes to rush the court and celebrate the latest high point in surprising season. It should cost South Carolina a $100,000 fine from the SEC under league policy, but no one was concerned about that at the moment. It's the third straight loss at South Carolina for the Wildcats and fourth in their last seven meetings in the series. Number two, Purdue defeated Michigan 99-67. Lance Jones scored a season-high 24 points, and Zach Eady added 16 points and 10 rebounds to lead host Purdue to a rout of Michigan. Jones, a fifth-year transfer from Southern Illinois, sank five of nine three-point shots for the Boilermakers, who won their fourth straight game. Purdue's Braden Smith contributed 11 points, 10 assists, and seven rebounds. Jalen Llewellyn led Michigan with 16 points. Terrence Williams II and George Washington III each scored 10 points. Number 4, Houston, defeated number 21, BYU, 75-68. L.J. Cryer scored 23 points to lead Houston to a road victory over BYU. Jamal Sheed chipped in 16 points, and Damian Dunn added 10 for Houston, which scored 17 points off 13 BYU turnovers and finished with a 15-7 advantage in second-chance points. Texas defeats number 11 Oklahoma 75-60. to Max Abmus scored 22 points to help Texas roll past host Oklahoma. Dylan Disu had 19 points and 10 rebounds, and Dylan Mitchell added 8 points and 13 boards for the Longhorns, who shot 50% from the floor to win their sixth straight in the series. Texas was coming off Saturday's victory over then number 9 Baylor. Number 12 Duke defeated Louisville 83-69. Tyrese Proctor scored a career-high 24 points, including 13 after halftime with several clutch baskets. Mark Mitchell returned from injury to add 20 with 12 rebounds, and Duke outlasted host Louisville. Number 13, Wisconsin defeated Minnesota 61-59. Tyler Wall had 16 points and hit two free throws with five seconds left to help Wisconsin beat rival Minnesota in Minneapolis. A.J. Store had 15 points and 12 rebounds for the Big Ten leading Badgers, who beat the Gophers for the seventh straight time. Max Klesmit scored 11 points. Number 16, Dayton defeated LaSalle 66-54. Darren Holmes II scored 22 points, and Javon Bennett and Nate Santos each scored 13 to lead Dayton to its 13th straight win, a road victory over LaSalle. And number 17, Creighton defeated Xavier 85-78. Trey Alexander scored a season-high 27 points, and Baylor Shireman had 15 of his 20 in the second half, leading host Creighton past Xavier. In MLB news, Beltre, Maurer, and Helton elected to Hall of Fame. Todd Helton thought back to when he was a kid being coached by his father Jerry, a minor league catcher in this 1960s. 
When I would go one for three and it's a bad day when you're young, he'd say, one for three gets you into the Hall of Fame, Helton said. Helton, Adrian Beltre, and Joe Maurer were voted into Cooperstown on Tuesday, feeling elation and relief when they were rewarded with baseball's highest honor. Beltray was a no-doubt first-ballot choice after batting 286 with 477 homers, 1,707 RBIs, and 3,166 hits for four teams over 21 seasons. The third baseman appeared on 366 of 385 ballots cast by members of the Baseball Writers Association of America. Helton made it on the sixth try, Voters taking time to warm to statistics inflated by the thin, mile-high air of Denver's Coors Field over 17 seasons, all with the Colorado Rockies. The first baseman got 307 votes for 79.7% after falling 11 short last year when Scott Rowland was elected. Helton started at 16.5% support in 2019. I was the most superstitious guy in the world, Helton said. I hadn't been superstitious in 10 years until today. Maurer joined Johnny Bench and Yvonne Rodriguez as the only first ballot picks who primarily were catchers and at 40 became the youngest living Hall of Famer. He got 293 votes, four more than the 75% needed, after batting 306 with 143 homers and 906 RBIs in 15 years, all with his hometown Minnesota Twins. Goes by way too fast, Maurer said. Beltre, Maurer, and Helton will be inducted on July 21st along with Jim Leyland, elected last month by the Contemporary Era Committee for managers, executives, and umpires. There are 273 players among 346 people in the hall, and just 60 of those players were elected on the first try. Beltre becomes the fifth Dominican-born Hall of Famer after Juan Marichal, Pedro Martinez, Vladimir Guerrero, and David Ortiz. I'm proud of the fact that I was able to play for a long time and be able to compete at the highest level, Beltre said. I'm honored to be in the Hall of Fame. It's something that I never even dreamed of. Reliever Billy Wagner was five votes short at 284, but up from 68.1% last year. He will appear on the ballot for the 10th and final time in 2025 when Ichiro Suzuki and CC Sabathia are newly eligible. Gary Sheffield got 246 votes for 63.9% in his final appearance on the BBWAA ballot, up from 55% last year and 11.7% in 2015. He is eligible for consideration by the Contemporary Baseball Player Committee, which next meets in December of 2025. Beltre, a four-time All-Star and five-time Gold Glove winner, played for the Los Angeles Dodgers from 1998 to 2004, Seattle from 2005 to 2009, Boston in 2010, and Texas 2011 to 2018. His 2,759 games at third base are second to Brooks Robinson's 2,870, and his 636 doubles are 11th. 
Helton, a five-time All-Star first baseman and the 2000 Major League batting champion, hit 345 with 200 homers and 791 RBIs at home and 200, 287 with 142 homers and 547 RBIs on the road. Pitchers get hurt, they say you can't throw in thin air, and then hitters get dinked because they play Colorado, Helton said. I'm not embarrassed or anything about my home and road numbers. Going on the road after hitting in Colorado is hard. The ball breaks more, and it's a huge adjustment going through the season. Mauer was a six-time All-Star, three-time Gold Glove winner, and the 2009 AL MVP, an All-Star in six of his first ten big league seasons, and the only catcher to win three batting titles, Maurer moved to first base for his last five years following a concussion on a foul tip off the bat of New York Mets' Ike Davis on August 19, 2013, an injury that ended Maurer's season. Here's some NFL notes. AP source says Johnson out as Eagles offensive coordinator. Philadelphia Eagles have fired offensive coordinator Brian Johnson, a person familiar with the decision told the Associated Press on Tuesday. The person spoke to the AP on condition of anonymity because the team hasn't announced the move. Johnson joins ousted defensive coordinator Sean Desai as coach Nick Sariani continues to reshape his staff following a season-ending collapse. The Eagles went from starting 10 wins and 1 loss to finishing with a record of 11 wins and 6 losses and losing 32-9 to to Tampa Bay in the wildcard round. Johnson joined the Eagles as quarterback's coach in 2021 and was promoted to offensive coordinator after Shane Steichen left to take the head job at Indianapolis. He has interviewed with the Atlanta Falcons and Tennessee Titans for head coach this month. And veteran referee Bill Vinovich will lead the officiating crew for the Super Bowl next month in Las Vegas. The NFL announced Tuesday that Vinovich will work his third Super Bowl and be joined by a crew that includes umpire Terry Killens, down judge Patrick Holt, line judge Mark Perlman, field judge Tom Hill, side judge Alan Baines, back judge Brad Freeman, and replay official Mike Chase. We'll finish up with today's humor article entitled Root of the Problem, written by Jerry Zazima of the Tribune News Service. Word of mouth has it that on a pain scale of 1 to 10, the bad tooth that recently made my jaw feel like it had been hit by lightning was a 47. That's why, far from home and without dental insurance, which only compounded the agony, I needed an emergency root canal. Fortunately, I got one from a great endodontist who once gave himself a root canal and lived to tell about it. My tale of misery began when my left lower molar, tooth number 18, if you're scoring at home, began to be sensitive to cold. Since my mouth produces nothing but hot air, I didn't see how this could be possible. But sure enough, cold water and, yes, cold beer nearly sent me ricocheting off the ceiling. So I called my dentist. Just my luck, he was on vacation. Even worse, my wife, Sue, and I were leaving on a 300-mile road trip to see our older daughter and her family. I figured I could tough it out for a week until we got back. My molar had other ideas. It was some nerve. The pain intensified daily until I woke up in the middle of the night feeling like someone had jackhammered my tooth and poured molten lava into it. My daughter, taking pity on me, asked friends to recommend a dentist who was not on vacation and could see me immediately. 
Thus did I end up in the chair of, of Dr. Candace Turpin, a friendly, gentle, and exceptionally capable dentist who said my molar was cracked and asked about my level of pain. When I told her it was a 47, she said, You're very pleasant for someone who's in so much pain. It's amazing that you're cracking jokes. It's better to crack a joke than to crack a tooth, I said. You've done both, said Dr. Turpin, who suggested I see an endodontist. You may need a root canal. Mercifully, Dr. Keva Zand was in the same building, wasn't on vacation, and could see me right away. Sure enough, he said, I needed a root canal. Don't worry, said Dr. Zand, it won't hurt. In fact, I once gave myself a root canal. Who held the mirror, I wondered. I did, he replied. How did it come out, I asked. Great, the good doctor said, and I didn't feel a thing. Then, as I reclined in a chair, he produced a needle that looked like it could be used for spearfishing and said, this is the only part that's not fun. After he numbed my gum, which conveniently rhymed, I said, that was fun. Next, Dr. Zand took me to another chair, told me to open wide, put what looked like a plastic tarp over my molar, and got to the root of the problem. When the half-hour procedure was over, he said, You have three canals under that tooth. One is infected, but it's not the one that was giving you trouble. It sounds like an eerie canal, I remarked. You're going to need a crown, Dr. Zand informed me. Because my tooth was a royal pain, I said. Dr. Zand flashed a dazzling smile and replied, I see the anesthetic has worn off. A few days later, I was back in Dr. Turpin's office. How did the root canal go, she asked. Fine, I said. Dr. Zan and I bonded. Dr. Turpin smiled and said, You're still joking. I'm going to numb you now. After she crowned me, she put a filmy material on my tooth and said, Grind for me. I shimmied in the chair. No, Dr. Turpin said. I mean, grind your teeth. With that, my torturous experience was over. Or at least I thought so, because I don't have dental insurance, which is said not to be worth the cost. The total bill came to $7,000. That's a lot of money, Sue noted. I nodded and said, you took the words right out of my mouth. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Wednesday, January 24th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.